Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. If you've been listening for a while, you've probably heard me mention my cousin Emily a few times now. She was a guest back on episode 10, and she has just become the official Story Night recruitment officer and keeps sending me the most amazing women who want to share their stories. And so without further ado, we have another wonderful friend connection from Emily. And Kayla is my guest tonight. And before we, you know, jump into her story, actually, Kayla, will you introduce yourself? But also, how did how did you end up meeting Emily? Yeah, hi. So my name is Kayla Bell. I am 31 years old, and we have four kids. I'm married to my wonderful husband, Mark, and we have kind of a crazy story. My children are all young, this year, they'll be eight, six, four, and two. We have three girls and then a little boy at the end bringing up the rear of the family. And he is the rear of the family. We are done. <laughs> I met my husband at culinary school in New York, and he's now in the Navy as an intelligence officer. So we have kind of a crazy life and we're busy and we're constantly moving, which is how I met Emily. We got stationed in Pensacola for about four and a half years. And during that time, we ended up at the same church that Emily went to and just through women's ministry and just getting to connect with other families of like-mindedness, we met the Smiths and they kind of took us under their wing just with having a larger family and just helping us, giving us, you know, information and advice on raising small children in lots of numbers. So that's how we kind of met and connected. And we've just remained connected throughout the last couple of years. I, I love it. I I start to wonder if she actually knows anybody that isn't willing to share a story because it seems like her whole world is just, yes, absolutely. When can we record? <laughs> Which I think is yeah. fantastic. She's, she definitely gets you to want to share your story. She loves to chat with people. And I was just down there in Pensacola for these last four months while my husband went through training. And so it was just really fun to get back together with her and her just pull different things out of me and chat and stuff before we moved up here to Denver. She may just have to co-host this with me one of these days. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you just just did another move and you're coming to us from, from Denver. Knowing your story and how much you've moved, if I understand it correctly, actually kind of Colorado was part of your very, very beginning places that you called home. So let's go back to 1990 and start your story. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So it's so weird to say that I was born in 1990 now because I feel like I am that person who used to be like, oh man, they're so old. I can't, I'll never be that old. And here I am. And I'm like, I'm not old. I'm young. So yeah, my family, actually my origin was California. My parents lived there in 1990 and that's where I was born was in California. And my dad worked construction and so he just went wherever there was construction work back then. So we hopped from state to state up until the time I was born. And he ended up finally taking a job in Colorado when I was about a year old. And so my whole family moved to Colorado when I was a year. At that point, my parents decided to get divorced. So I grew up in a split home. 
my dad remarried when I was three and my mom had remarried a few times between when I was two and to this day to her husband currently. So growing up in Colorado was really great. I think back and I have very fond memories. Both of my parents were very involved in my life. I was in sports. I remember my dad racing from work in his construction job to make it to both my brother and I's games throughout the week, which was clear across town. I remember from from our point of view, our parents had a really great co-parenting relationship and very rarely were my brother and I ever put into spats. And so I just, I look back on my childhood and it was just the best scenario for what I didn't know at the time was a not so desirable case. When I think when you grow up in divorced families, you just, you don't know any different. And so it's just kind of your normal and you make it work and it, it can be good and it can be bad. Just like having parents who are still married can be good and bad. So part of my story, which I hate that this is part of my story, but it is. And when I was younger, my brother is five years older than me. So he always had older friends. And at one point in my childhood, uh, this kind of kickstarted the path that I would walk in my adult life. When I was younger, one of my brother's friends had inappropriately touched me uh, around about the age of nine. He had lifted up my shirt and was just very sexual towards me as a nine-year-old girl. He was an older teenage boy, well, a middle teenage boy. And that kind of turned on and ignited a fire in my body that was not supposed to be turned on or ignited at that point in my life. And it would definitely put me on a different projection than what I possibly could have walked had that not happened. So come middle school, I was very involved in sports and I kind of got into the crowd of the girls who were kind of the cool girls and they dressed a little bit provocative and they liked to flirt with boys. I I semi-maintained my innocence because my parents were very, like I said, involved in my life. So there wasn't a whole lot of room for me to sneak around or be provocative because although at that time my parents were not walking with the Lord or going to church or anything along those lines, they did have kind of the moral compass of you cover up your body, this your body is for you, you're too young to participate in anything. And so having involved parents who had that kind of moral compass kept me from a lot of things that I potentially could have gotten involved in in junior high, even though I had those desires and that fire. It was hard though, because I'm the kind of person who's always the really good second friend, but never the best friend. So I would try to put myself into circles or try to maintain friendships and I'm an open book. So when I, when I make a friend, you're like, you get to know my entire life. And I just, I'm a loyalist. So whether or not I should be loyal to you is neither here nor there. If I've decided that you're somebody I want in my circle, I become loyal to you. And that caused a lot of heartbreak in middle school because middle school girls can be a little bit nasty. And so I would, I would become friends with girls and I would join circles and then come to find out, you know, they would talk about me behind my back as girls do. And so I really struggled with the identity of value and worthiness. And I think between what had happened to me in my younger years and not having the affirmation of a best friend or a loyalty 
of a friend like I was in middle school, it really sent me on this idea that I just, I wasn't worthy of anything. And so I had to find different ways to make people find value in me. And the ways that I was seeing that uh, played out in middle school was by getting boys to like you and by, by being flirty and by having the mentality that it didn't matter if they were saying bad things or good things about you, as long as you were on their tongue. And so I definitely went into this like character play where depending on who I was around and depending on what kind of day it was, I definitely molded my personality and myself to the group that I was in. So everybody who was friends with me thought that I was a different kind of person because I was like a jack of all personalities and never truly true to myself. And because of being in sports and my parents' involvement in my life, I wasn't allowed to date in middle school. So that was never a problem. And then we kind of transition. I started off at one middle school and we transitioned to a different middle school because the coach had asked me to come and play on their basketball team. And because of that, I was filtered into a different high school. So we started high school and everything was just kind of par for the core. There was nothing really exciting happening. My brother graduated high school and he joined the Marines. And I just remember that being like a really defining moment in my family because I just remember my mom not wanting him to. And that kind of had a little bit of tension. She was proud of him for doing something with his life because he was kind of on a rough path. So she was proud of him for that. And then I just remember the the house life just kind of, it was weird. Like my, my older brother was moving out and it was just kind of like me at the house all of a sudden. And so in 2004, I was a sophomore in high school and, oh, forgive me. I can never say this part of my story without crying. So excuse my emotions. But in 2004, my brother was killed overseas by a suicide bomber. And I just, I remember going to high school and walking through those walls. And even to this day, just feeling like everything was speeding by me and I was walking in slow motion and just, it was, it was weird because my brother and I were five years apart. And so we didn't have the closest relationship, but he was always the protector of me when he got older and his friends would make comments about me, he would get really rough on them. And he would send me to another room. Like I was never welcome to be in his space when his friends were around as he got into the older grades. And so he was kind of my protector. And I just, that time in our family was so hard. I mean, as a parent now, I look back and I don't understand how my mom and dad continued to get out of bed because I can't imagine losing one of my children now. And they still, in by the grace of God, got out of bed every day and still continued to show up in my life. A year prior to this, my mom had started going to church with me. I had started going to church with my sister about three years before my brother passed away. And I brought my mom to church with me. And she had decided at this point that life was kind of null and void. And if she didn't have the purpose of serving God. She just didn't know if there was anything more valuable in life. So she got saved. And my brother, one of his last letters home was that he'd had a lot of time sitting on the ship, just thinking and being alone and being able to kind of be in his headspace. And he decided that, you know, he realized that what he had done with his life up to this point was so 
pointless and without value and purpose and that he wanted to find purpose. And he'd been talking to one of the other guys who was a Christian on the ship. And so he decided to give his life to the Lord. And that we got that letter, I think, two weeks after he passed away. So it was it was one of those moments where it was like, thank you, Lord, for saving him. And thank you for securing his you know, eternity. But at the same time, just going through those motions of why him, why couldn't he come home, you know, and it was, it was so new at the start of the war. And it felt like we were attending funerals every other week. And it was just, it was a really raw time of life. And because of that, I definitely struggled. I struggled to maintain normalcy in my life. I struggled to be able to focus on my studies just because I think when you have such a huge impact on your life, when something collides so large in your life, you just kind of redefine what life's purpose is. And even though I'd been going to church and, you know, at the time I thought I was saved, I, I thought that all you had to say was a prayer and it was like a magic potion. And all of a sudden Jesus was Lord and that's what I said. So that's what it must be. I just, I felt like I was spiraling and wondering why God wasn't giving my life purpose at that point. So I dropped out of public school and I started homeschooling. And that was, that was an interesting time of life. (laughs) I made some friends in homeschool, which was so different than public school because I felt like I had really made true deep friendships at the homeschool co-op that I was attending. At the time I was dating the pastor's son, my parents had started to allow me to date in high school. And so I was dating the pastor's son who went to public school. We only knew each other through church. He didn't attend any of my schools. And we just became very physical with each other. We had started getting some freedom. Our parents didn't constantly watch us. And we just became very physical with each other, not to the point of actually having sex with each other, but basically everything but that. And so between my brother passing away and the trauma that that brought and just trying still to have people find value in me in ways that I thought that they wanted to instead of ways that I had set for myself, I just really let so many things go. I had no boundaries. I just had no value of myself and it really showed. Everybody would tell you that I was extremely confident. I was super kind. I was outgoing. I could not walk into a room without leaving knowing every person's name and life history. But on the inside, the confidence was not there. And it was just very shallow and surfacy. And I forced myself to be that super outgoing person because, again, I knew that that's what people like. They wanted to feel comfortable around me. And so, I forced myself to be that place of comfort for everybody else at the cost of being the comfort for myself. At the end of high school, I decided because I was, you know, a Christian that I was going to go to Bible college. And so I went out to California for Bible college. And that was an experience. My mom almost killed me, literally flew out to California and threatened to end my life if I did not come back to Colorado because I had just gone out there and tasted freedom. I was living with a host family who was very strict. And although my parents were very involved in my life, I would not say that they were strict at all. There was very rarely a time where we had asked to do something that they would say no. If we were going out with our friends, they would just say, you know, keep us updated on what time you're going to be home. 
And because of that openness with my parents, we always had very healthy respect for their boundaries that they, I guess, didn't put on us. So there was no need for curfew because we would always make sure that we were home at a decent hour. And there was no need for worrying about drugs or alcohol because we just respected our parents enough not to do things that we knew would upset them. So going from a very relaxed standard at home to a very strict standard at home, my personality was like time to light that on fire. So I went nutso, just in a very defiant, rebellious kind of way. They would allow their daughter to go and do things and I would not be allowed to. And so I would just pack my bag and put it in my car and go stay at my boyfriend's house for a weekend. And I was very thankful for the protection that God put over my life at that time. My boyfriend, while I was out in California, was also attending the Bible school and he just had very high standards of himself and he was very protective over me. So that was probably the only point that I can think of in a relationship that I was in where I was actually taken care of in a physical manner where there was no advantages taken or no liberties taken with each other. And it was actually one of the only relationships where everybody did not like him because they just assumed because I would stay at his house that things were happening that should not have been. So it's always so funny how what perception I gave people. Like when I was in really toxic relationships, I gave the perception that it was very healthy and there were boundaries and that was not so. And then when I gave the perception that there were no boundaries, it was probably the healthiest relationship I'd ever been in up to my marriage three years in. So it was just, it's so funny to look back on those times and just see the irony of life. But I was not invited back to the second semester of my Bible college because of the way that I was acting, because it was very clear that although I had the wisdom and the knowledge of the Bible, just that that gifting that the Holy Spirit gives you, my heart and my value was not to be there for the right reason. So they did not invite me back. I ended up moving back to Colorado with my mom and attending college. And the first semester of college, I met a boy and we started dating immediately. My life story is I cannot be single. I have to be in a relationship to give me value. So we started dating and I was just constantly in a relationship So we were dating for a few months during college. And then I kind of told him that I don't just date people for the heck of it, that I date to get married because that was the Christian thing to do, right? You don't just date, you date to get married. So this boy was not a believer, but I had missional dating and not missional dating in the sense of bringing them to the salvation and knowledge of Jesus. But just there was some, I needed to fix something. And that's why I was always dating. I just found boys that I wanted to fix. And it it was literally anything. So I told him either we're getting married or we're breaking up. And I was, I would have been 19 at this point. So as a 19 year old, I was threatening a boy that I was breaking up with him if we don't get married, which looking back now, I'm like, oh, Lord, why? (laughs) Why was I, why am I the way that I am? And So we ended up getting engaged at the age of 19 and we got engaged in November timeframe. And in December, we had just kind of gotten on each other's last nerves as most engaged couples do at a certain point of wedding planning. 
And we decided to take a break for a couple of weeks, just give each other a little bit of space, make sure that this is what we wanted to do. In that time, he had started talking to my best friend from my homeschool co-op. I didn't know this at the time, of course, They're, they were just very hush-hush about it. Then we ended up getting back together after those couple weeks, decided, yes, we still wanted to get married. And I noticed that she started pulling away from me. She was my, my maid of honor. She stopped coming to the bridal shower event. She stopped coming to like making the bouquets because we were doing, we were 19. So we were doing everything very low budget. And I had just wondered, you know, if there was something that had happened, if we gotten into a fight that I didn't know about, and I did not understand why she didn't want to be a part of my special day. We were supposed to get married in July and in January, it all came out that they were in a relationship. They'd been seeing each other. And I was like, I want to throw a frying pan at your head. And so instead I handed him his ring back and I said, I never want to see or hear from the two of you ever again. Do not contact me. That's the end of our friendship. That's the end of our relationship. Have a great life. Now you'll hear later on in my story, how that all transpired. But at that moment, as a 19 year old, I was completely heartbroken. Again, I had found that my value was not enough and that, again, people were constantly telling me that I was good for a season, but not good for the long run. And that really, after so many relationships of boys leaving you for your best friends, it really does something to you emotionally as a woman that you just feel like, man, like I am not good enough. Like I will never be first place. I will always be second best. I will always be used until I'm no longer needed. And then I will be discarded. Like there, no one, no one can find value in me. And that really messes with your idea of who God is. Like my whole entire story, I was putting how humans treated me on God and how he valued me or how he viewed me or what he would do to me. Because if man was made in God's image and this was how man was treating me, then surely this is also how God felt about me, that I was only good enough for him as long as I was doing what he wanted me to do. And I was only valuable to him until the next person came along who could do that. And I started to pull away from God. I started to go to church, but I would sit out in the foyer and chat with people instead of going into service and hearing the Bible. I would not be reading my Bible at home. I would not be doing Bible studies. I just, I wouldn't be reading God's word daily and really letting it soak into my heart. Now, again, as I said earlier, I thought that I was saved. And so when I was doing all these things, it just, it was amazing how easy it was for me to stop hearing God's voice. It was to stop having that wisdom. I was just, I was almost like shocked, like, oh, I thought it would have been harder. Like if I was pulling away from you, that it would be harder for you not to maintain my, in my presence. And so again, that reiterated and reestablished that God didn't value me as a person, because obviously if he wasn't there, then there was no value there also. I ended up moving to Italy a short time after I broke off the engagement with this boy. I was 100% running away from my life. I did not want to be in America. I did not want to be in the same time zone as them. <laughs> Instead of just simply moving to another state, I moved to another country. 
Terrible idea. Also, by the way, never do this. If you ever break up, just don't move to another country. It is not like what Hollywood makes it. You will not find love in another country. It is miserable. And I have found in life that when you run away from your problems, they just get bigger. They don't actually disappear. They just, you kind of shove them in a closet and then you open the door one day and you're like, whoa, how'd you get so big? So I was over in Italy and I was working as an au pair and I, again, was still, I brought my Bible with me and I would flip, I would just open it to a random page and close my eyes and stick my finger on a verse and say, God, if you don't talk to me today, then I know you're not real. And it would be like, and the Hittites took over the Amorites. And I was like, what does that even mean, Lord? Like, am I, who am I? And so just, oh, Lord have grace with me. So in Italy, I became severely depressed. I can think at this stage of my life, there have been only three times where I have really had that spirit of depression fall on me. And all three times, well, two times, it was because I was being disobedient in the Lord's will for my life. And one time we'll get to that in a minute. And that was literally circumstantial. But I was extremely depressed. The spirit of depression was 100% on me. I had gained a ton of weight, even though I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping. I was non-social, which again is very different for me because I'm a very outgoing, friendly person. And I just remember calling my mom and telling her, I can't do this anymore. I need you to fly me home. And I just, I really thank God for the people he's put in my life and specifically my parents, because they have walked through so many just duds in my life and been so gracious and so kind and understanding to just bring me back to where I need to be and allowing me the space to kind of really just fall on my face and work out my salvation on my own. And now whether that was because they themselves didn't have a strong foundation of Christ or because God knew that I was just so darn stubborn that I would really have to wrestle through my entire salvation for many years before I would finally surrender to him. Either way, it was just wisdom on his part to give me these people. So I came back from Italy and over in Italy, of course, food is life. And so I had fallen in love with food. Yes, it is just, it's so delicious and the pasta is so fresh and everything I swear they use one seasoning, but that one seasoning makes everything taste so life-giving. So I really fell in love with food and I was like, oh, this is my passion. This is what I need to do with my life. I'm going to go to culinary school, which was, I came home and my mom was like, culinary, you wanted to be a brain surgeon when you left. Like, how do you go from brain surgeon to culinary school? But I came back to, to Colorado at the time, my youth leader was manager at a hotel that I had worked at previously before I went to Italy. And so I went back and I talked with him and I talked with a couple other people and they got me into the kitchen because part of the culinary school's requirements was that you work in a kitchen for six months before you can go to make sure that that's something that you actually want to do. Because kitchen life is very grueling and it's not for the faint of heart or the prudent at all. So I worked in the kitchen for six months. And during that six months, I just promiscuous was definitely a word that you could have used to describe me. I didn't care if I knew your name. I didn't care if I would ever see you again. I was just hell bent on showing boys that I could devalue them just as much as they could devalue me. And so in my eyes, I was 
just picking out random men and just telling myself, I'm not going to have feelings for you. I'm not going to get attached. I'm going to use you the way that you guys have used me. And then I'm going to discard you the way that you've discarded me. And it really just goes to show how debased your mindset can get when you allow lies to become your truths. And when you allow really just Satan to do his handiwork in your life and just allow the world to become your idol, basically. At that point, I just, I was done caring about religion. I was done caring about God. He obviously didn't care about me. I was going to make my own path and I was going to do it my own way. I was going to secure my own heart because nobody else was. And that was just the path that I decided to be on because I, I, I think I was just so hurt and so numb and so dead inside because I was not getting any kind of life from the source of life that I just, I laid down in a grave. So I went through the kitchen and I went through that spout with men and I got accepted into the culinary Institute and my mom drove me out to New York and she sent me up in my dorm and I started culinary school. And the first day we went through the introduction of the school, we were walking through the halls and everything. And there's this really cute boy. Again, I can't be single for longer than a second. So of course, I'm always going to the next place looking for the next guy, right? So there was this really cute guy. He was working in the the admissions office and he was doing the tours for the school. And I noticed him and he noticed me. And that's really all it took was noticing. And at culinary school, you have co-ed dorms. So boys and girls are in the same dorms on the same floors, separate rooms, but on the same floor. And I remember about five days after being in culinary school, I was walking from my dorm room down to the vending machines. And there was that super cute boy walking up the stairs. And next thing I know, he spins around and he follows me down to the vending machines and awkwardly stands there staring at me while I'm at the vending machines. And I just turn around and I'm like, hi. And of course he says hi. And then I get my things and I start walking and he starts following me. And so I turn around and I'm like, okay, either you're a stalker or like, were you not getting something at the vending machine? And he fumbles around his words and he's like, I I just, I forgot my wallet. So... Nothing had changed in my life. I'm still on that path of I'm going to show men that I don't value them. And he had shown interest in me. And so I said, you know, would you like to meet at the local bar and have a drink or something? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. Well, when I say I'm going out at night, I mean, I'm going out at nine and I'm going to be in bed by 1130 because I... I'm tired. Like, I don't want to stay up until three o'clock in the morning. Well, he did not know that because in New York, you don't go out until 11 o'clock and then you come home at four o'clock in the morning and then you do your day. So I had gone to the bar early and there was another boy who was in the same dorm as us. So I'd seen him a couple of times and he buys me a drink and we just start chatting and I'm waiting for this boy to show up and he never does and he never does. And it's only like 10 30. So he's not even ready to come out yet, but I don't know that. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm just, I'm done waiting. Can you take me back to the dorm? And this other guy is more than happy to, because it's culinary school and we all know what going back to the dorm means. And so we go back to the dorm and we're pulling up and I'm walking in with this other guy and that boy is walking out and he's like, Hey, I was just coming to meet you. And I'm like, sorry, you had your chance and you didn't show up. So I came home with this guy like, have a great night at the bar. 
And he was like, what just happened? And so I go home with this other guy. And then the next morning I wake up and this super cute boy whose name you guys now can hear is Mark, who is obviously my husband. (laughs) He calls me and he says, Hey, I know that you went home with this other guy and I don't care if he's still sleeping next to you right now. Would you like to go and get breakfast? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Because I don't care if I hurt a boy because they don't have value to me. So I'm like, sure. Next guy. Absolutely. Let's go. So he takes me to a restaurant and we start chatting and I find him very intelligent and very like the conversation just flowed so smooth. And it kind of makes a crack in my hard heart. Like, hmm, like this guy's kind of different. He's actually having a conversation with me. He's actually invested in what I'm saying. And I didn't know it at the time, but I really was falling for him. And I was losing that that ground that I'd been standing on of, I'm not going to value you. And I really started to value him even from that first day. And after that restaurant... He was like, there's really good wineries here too. So we go to a winery and we have so much fun. And I just look back at the pictures now and it's just two young kids, totally wide-eyed for each other. And it was just, it was such a sweet season. And then later that night, I let my guard down for a second. And then he had said something and I don't even remember what it was, but I just remember getting that super scared feeling of he's only going to love me as long as I... And giving him what he wants. And so, of course, boys only want physical things. They don't, they couldn't possibly just love a woman for the sake of loving her for her heart or her integrity or anything like that. So I start pushing the subject of sleeping together. And of course, I'd shared with him about my fiance who left me for my best friend. I share with him about all these guys who just slept with me and then left. And he is kind of pushing me away, like, Hey, I don't want to be like those other guys. Like, I really like you. I kind of want you to stick around and I don't want you to just think I'm here for one thing. Like, let's take this slow. And I'm very persuasive. I'm like, no, you're not like the other guys. I I already know that this is fine. And of course I ultimately end up winning because neither one of us have any kind of boundary apart from what we set for ourselves. And we have been used to sleeping around. So we lose that battle. And we end up sleeping together on that first night. Now, we stayed together through all of culinary school, which was very different for me because I didn't think we were going to. But our story actually gets very difficult. And God's God's grace and intervention really shines through. And I think I think that's the part of my story I love the most is that God allowed me to be human so that he could show his grace for my humanness. he never expected perfection of me. He never expected me to constantly be doing the right thing, to constantly be performing because he already knew that I wouldn't be able to. But because of those moments where I was not able to perform, his grace really got to show through in my life. That's kind of the fav- my favorite arch of my story. The covering of my story is God's grace interceding. So there is this part of culinary school where it's called an externship and you have to pick a food place to work throughout the United States. And there's some countries that also participate in it and you go for six months and you intern at this location doing whatever they need you to do. And up to the point, I guess part of my story that I forgot to mention was after I had broken up with my fiance, I 
started online dating and I met a boy who was in the military. So we never got to meet up because he was stationed in Germany and we had been talking. So we never had a physical relationship because there was no possible way for that. And we had just emailed and FaceTimed and we're just constantly talking all the time. And even while I was dating Mark, I was still constantly talking to this boy because he was my best friend. He had been with me for two years at this point. And I just, I could not let him go because he wasn't a threat to Mark. We weren't in a relationship. Like I was with Mark and I told Mark that over and over and over again. And of course he was like, yeah, that's not how that works. But I just, I am, I was stubborn and he knew that I was who I was and he wasn't going to be able to change me. And so he just accepted it for what it was. So we go on this culinary externship and he goes down to South Florida and I go to West Virginia. And this boy who's in the military who I've been talking to, he gets stationed in Maryland, which is a very short drive to West Virginia. So we're in culinary and Mark and I were kind of separating at this point he's working a lot of really long hours and I'm working different hours and there's not a lot of communication happening. There's not a lot of talking and reconnecting. It's just, Hey, yeah, you're my boyfriend. Hey, yeah, you're my girlfriend. This, like, this is what it is. We don't really have time to talk to each other, but we just tell everybody that we're in a relationship. I had flown down to see Mark in Florida for Thanksgiving And I had to fly through the Maryland airport, the main one. So this boy comes and meets me at the airport. This is our first time ever meeting. And we sat down and had lunch. And I just got really conflicting feelings because I now had a physical connection to this boy who I had a very emotional connection to. And for me, I am a very physical person. That is my highest love language is physical touch. And so... I think for the longest time with him, I didn't fully allow myself to love him because I didn't fully have that love language connection with him, which was physical touch. But once I had that physical touch with him of just even hugging him, seeing him in person, it really just overwhelmed me with the love that I had for him. So now I'm in a relationship with Mark and I'm finding out that I really love this other guy as well. And I am. 100% of the mindset that there is no such thing as a soulmate on this earth, that we choose love and we choose faithfulness and we choose integrity in our relationships. And that's what makes that bond so secure between two people. And so I was kind of at this turning point where this fork in the road, where I was about to choose who I was going to dedicate myself to and who I was going to have integrity in my relationship with. But I was not sure at that time. And so I started treating my relationship with Mark like I did all those other boys as I'm not going to value you. I'm going to just do me. I'm going to figure me out. And if you win, great for you. If you don't, like no loss to me, basically. So I went down to Florida to see Mark. I still went down. While I was down there, he ended up proposing to me. And of course, he's my boyfriend. So I say yes, because that's what you're supposed to do, right? I'm still believing that I'm a Christian at this point. So I'm still dating to get married because I'm picking and choosing what part of my Christian life I actually want to live out. And that was one of the ones I wanted to live out was I wanted to get married. I've always wanted to be married. I've always wanted to have a family. And Mark was offering me this opportunity to fulfill those check boxes that I had on my list of things I wanted to do. And so I said, yes. 
not even three hours before I was having mixed emotions of whether I was even going to stay with Mark. So I had gone back up to West Virginia after being down in Florida, getting engaged. And you would think that that was the point where I had decided to stick it out with Mark and leave the military boy on the sidelines. Unfortunately, though, that is not how my story goes. The military boy had surprised me and come down to see me where I was externing. And through a series of events, he had stayed at my house and I had been unfaithful to my now fiance. I remember halfway through that encounter, a a huge conviction falling on me. I mean, when I say huge, I mean like I thought thunderbolts were coming through my roof and I told him he needed to pack his stuff and he needed to get out because I was about to get cursed from God. There was so heavy of a conviction on me and just a, what are you doing? It's time for you to wake up from your slumber. Like you have been sleeping in this grave and it is time for you to come alive. I was sick, physically sick to my stomach. I could not stop getting sick. I was so just dead. I felt dirty and I just wanted to crawl out of my skin. But it was really, that was kind of the starting point to where God was starting to show me that his grace in my life was not because of the acts that I performed for him, but because of who he was. And we'll get more to that later on in my story. So my fiance now comes up to West Virginia on his way back to New York as his externship had ended. And through a series of events, he starts to have suspicions about something happening between me. And at this point, he doesn't know, but another boy. And I vehemently deny all of the allegations or the questions that he has. And because my husband is such a loyalist, and he has always been a loyalist, on the outside, he appeared to believe my stories and my lies. But on the inside, he still wrestled with that the suspicions were true. So he went back up to New York and again, I physically just, I couldn't, I could not be with myself. Like if I could have literally walked out of my body, I felt so disgusting. Like I wanted to just throw my body in the fire and just completely leave it. And so I quit my externship. I went back up to New York and this was the second time in my life that I had ever felt the spirit of depression so heavy upon myself. I remember getting back up to New York and we were living in this literally the size of a master bedroom apartment that was a bed and a small kitchen and a bathroom all in one room. And we had a blow up mattress and that was all that we had. And he would go to work and I'd be laying in bed crying and he would come home from work and I would be laying in bed crying. And that happened for four days. And on the fourth day, he asked me, you know, what was wrong? And I knew that the only way to get the spirit of depression off of me was to be honest and to complain about the sin that I had committed or the wrongdoing that I had done to him. And so I confessed everything. And of course, that obviously devastated him. He forgave me almost immediately, but I could tell that it had really torn our relationship in a very big way. I start healing. I start feeling the spirit being lifted off of me. And in those days, I very much, the story of God taking the prophet to the Valley of the Dry Bones and saying, speak life over them and speak their flesh to come back on their bones. And it did. And then God saying, speak my breath into them. And they came alive. 
really was just in my head on repeat and how God had just really been showing me that I had laid myself down in this valley of just death and nothing. There was no flesh. There was no breath of life. There was no life at all. And it was just dead and how God was calling me to take his breath back into my body and to come back to life and to come back to head. And it was at that point where I truly believe I actually found salvation and that I finally surrendered my life to his lordship. So I started going back to church. I started taking Mark with me. We started getting pastoral mentorship, I guess is what you could call it. It was more like pastoral beatings for him. And as a unsaved man, he was constantly being reprimanded by this pastor about how he needed to step up and be the leader in the house and the man in this house. And throughout this whole time, I was completely unaware of what Mark's struggles had been. And I don't really want to get into those because that's not my story to share. But he had really been struggling with um, some sins in his life that were about to really heavily affect me when they came to light. And so we'd been going for a couple months. And after a couple months, I had come home from work one night and found our bed sheets just ruffled. And I made my bed every day. And so I was confused because Mark wasn't supposed to have been home that day. And I pulled up his computer and his entire browser history was wiped clean and his Facebook was up. And as I was looking through his Facebook, a message popped up from another girl that said, I really miss you. I miss the way you used to hold me and come to find out she was at his externship in Florida with him. So all this time that we had been repairing our relationship and I'd been confessing my sins about indiscretion with this other man while being engaged to him while he was in Florida and I was in West Virginia he had never once mentioned that there was another girl who he had been talking to. And he says that there was never anything between them. It was just an emotional connection. And I 100% believe him, especially at this point in our marriage. But at the time, it was very, very difficult for me to, again, not go back to that place of feeling devalued. And as though I was only good as long as they wanted me. And then when they stopped wanting me, I was no longer valued. During this time, God really starts to press on my heart who he is in my life. And I'm I'm working through now my parents being divorced when I was younger. I'm working through my brother leaving at such a young age when I really needed that protector. I'm working through all of these boys who don't value me. I'm working through being engaged to a man who I don't think actually finds value in me anymore. And God really starts speaking to me about he is my father and he is my protector. He is the one who seeks me and loves me. He is the one who gave up his son, who gave up his last breath to make me clean. Um, And then he really laid it on my heart in the Bible in the verse where he says, I will be your husband. And so... I started to, I really started to find value in the Lord's love for me. And I really started to find value in myself and how I was valued, not because of who I was. I was valued because Christ lived in me and because of what Christ did for me. I was valued because he saw me and he decided that he wanted to shed his blood for me and that he wanted to give up his life for me, that he wanted to cover me and I was valued because of his actions, not because of my own. 
And that really changed the trajectory of my life at that point because I stopped finding my worth and my value and my happiness in man. And I started to find my worth and my value and my happiness in God. I told Mark, I don't know what has happened. I don't know what you are struggling with, but I am here not because of myself. I'm here because God has called me to be here. And I made a promise to you to be married. And I know that we're not married yet, but I still think that my word holds weight. And so I said yes to you. And I mean, yes. And I've prayed about it. And I think I'm supposed to stay. So I am way less forgiving and whatever than my husband is. He is way more that vision of the Lord in our lives. But I stayed because God told me to stay, which was something that I had never done before. Usually I would run, I would escape, I would throw them to the wayside, and I'd say, I never want to see you again. So now Mark and I are engaged. We're about to get married. We get married. And oh my word, what in the world is a honeymoon stage? Because the first two and a half to three years of our marriage was just complete and total, for lack of better words, hell on earth. We did not jive. We did not mesh. He was working in the kitchen. We got pregnant five months after we got married. I was at home. We were living with my mom. We'd moved from New York. He graduated culinary school. I did not. We moved back to Colorado. We were living in my mom's basement. I was raising a young kid and he was going to work at the kitchen. Now, again, the kitchen is not for the modest person. So my husband, who still has not professed salvation, is going to work around these people who are super unfaithful to their spouses, who are very promiscuous. Their language is promiscuous. The kitchen is full of pornography and just this idea that whatever satisfies your flesh, absolutely do that. So I'm saved. I'm walking with the Lord. I'm really working on my relationship with him. And my husband is not. And I feel so unequally yoked at this point. I was frustrated I had expectations of him that he could not fulfill because he was not there. And I was just ready to leave. I said, I'd rather be a single mom. I'd rather get a divorce. I'd rather be 22 and divorced with a six-month-old than stay married to you. Like, I am done. You don't choose your family first. You're You're selfish. And I was very mean and bitter to him in my words. Now, my husband's love language is words of affirmation. So I was literally killing him every time that I was speaking because I was withdrawing so heavily from his love bank that he could not attach himself to me in any way, shape, or form. He went from this woman who doted on him, who was constantly building him up to just this very bitter, angry wife because he was not performing the way that I wanted him to perform. Every time we were at church, I would nudge him and say, hey, do you think maybe you want to get baptized this Sunday? And he'd be like, no, go away. And I would just do that over and over again. Every time the pastor would say something about husbands leading their wife, I'm like, are you taking notes? Are you listening to this? And I was so nagging to him. And for somebody who is not walking with the Lord, who doesn't have that foundation, that just drives them away so much more. I mean, for somebody who is walking with the Lord, who has that foundation, it really just gives a bad sour taste in their mouth. But for him specifically, he was very uninterested now at this point between the pastor in New York who just drilled him into the ground for not being a godly man to now the wife who had taken him away from his family and where he wanted to be. He wanted to stay in New York and I didn't. And so I had forced him to move to Colorado to live with my family and go to my church and be around my friends. 
And he was equally as bitter and angry at me as I was at him. Up to this point, by the way, the boy who was in the military who I had cheated on Mark with was still in my life. So we had reconnected and started talking again while I'm now married. And luckily, there was no physical contact. Thank thank you, Lord, because that would have just been devastating. But there was definitely an emotional affair that was happening because I was not getting from my husband what I wanted. I was finding it in other areas because I was very immature and still very selfish in my life. So fast forward to two and a half years into marriage, if you want to even call it marriage, We had rings on our fingers and a piece of paper from the state saying we were married, but we loathed each other. We did not like each other. And nobody around us supported us because they could see how we acted. And they did not think we were going to last. They thought for sure we were going to get divorced. My husband also comes from a divorced family. So we have always just been shown that when things get tough, you just leave. So we got to this really awkward point in our relationship where we just didn't like each other, but we also didn't know what what to do because we're both stubborn and we didn't want to give up. And I just remember the Lord just laying it on my heart to just shut up. He was not kind about it. He was not gentle. It was just very blatantly like, Kayla, stop talking. Stop nudging your husband during service. Stop asking him if he wants to get baptized. The work of the heart is only for me and nothing you say is going to change that. And so for anyone out there with an unsaved spouse, nothing you say to them is going to change their heart. You know, it's, it is a work of the Lord and only the Lord that can do that. Now, obviously you pray for them. You show them through your works. You show them through your love for them. But that's a big thing is you have to find love for your spouse again, because if you don't love your spouse, you're, you're taking from them. So I changed my ways very reluctantly and uh, groaningly, and I started affirming him. I would just, I had to find the littlest things, guys. Like he would take his shoes into the closet instead of leaving them in the middle of the floor. And I would just praise him in a big way for that. Like, oh, I just love it when you take your shoes. You're such an awesome husband. Thank you for taking care of me. And I couldn't. I couldn't find words of affirmation for the big things because I was not satisfied with him in the big things. So I had to start with the small things. Like when he took the trash out, I would just start small. And over time, it became easier for me to see the good things he was doing than the annoying things he was doing because my mind was set on finding things to affirm him about. And we would go to church and we would listen to the message. And instead of me badgering him to ask what he got, and you know, like, Let's just take a second to really understand that my husband still went to church with me every single Sunday and Wednesday night, even though he was not a believer, even though I was just being a toxic wife to him. Like he was still faithful to show up. So that shows me in and of itself that the Lord was already doing a work in him. So I I would just start talking to him about what I heard in the sermon. And if he wanted to share, I would welcome it. But if not, I was like, you know what? That's okay. It's not, it's fine. Like I still got something out of it. It was a good day. But I also started carrying his swim trunks in my purse just in case there was ever a baptism that he wanted to participate in. (laughs) Now, he did not know this because one Wednesday night we went to church and they were having a baptism and he was sitting there and I could have sworn he was on drugs. He was sweating. His hands were shaking. He was tapping his foot. 
he was just a hot, nervous mess. And I was like, what is your problem, dude? You need to calm down. Do you need to go for a walk? And I asked him, what are you doing? Like, why are you being so distracting? He's like, I don't know. He's like, I just, he's like, I don't know. And five minutes would pass. And I'm like, Mark, seriously, you need to stop. You're shaking the entire bench. Like you've got to stop moving your leg. And he was like, you know what? I think I need to get baptized. I think, I think I need, I'm being, I've just been disobedient to God and I've been putting him off. And I, you know what? Never mind. No, I don't, I'm not going to do it tonight. I'll do it next time. I don't, I'm just, I'm not going to get baptized in my jeans. I don't have anything with me. I didn't prepare for this. And I was like, oh, well, you wouldn't believe this, but I have your swim trunks in my purse. And he was like, why do you have my swim trunks in your purse? And I was like, oh, funny story. I've actually been carrying these around for seven months in my purse, just waiting for this moment because I knew that the Lord would absolutely save, like bring you to salvation. I knew it was coming and I just wanted to be prepared so that when you were ready, we were all ready. And he was like, you are literally the definition of ridiculous. You are, you are something else. Give me my swim trunks. And so he ended up getting baptized on a Wednesday night. And that was the turning point for our marriage. Not because now he was this great, amazing Christian, but because he had welcomed God into his heart to start leading and guiding him. I think one of the greatest privileges we have as a wife is being able to duck and allow God to hit our husband straight in the head. We definitely are under the covering of obedience that if we submit to our husbands and go where they go and follow where they lead, you know, within reason, not forsaking the Lord, obviously, that we are under the protection of God in that. And so I just ducked and just let God full on knock Mark on his butt. And it was the most glorious day in our marriage. You know, Kayla, you've hit this point in your story where I can imagine a lot of listeners have been hoping for a turning point. And then finally, we reach it. And there's sort of that, okay, now we can exhale. And here's this amazing moment. And your spouse is getting baptized. And you're saved. And he's saved. And it's happily ever after. And at this point, listeners are probably thinking, okay, that's kind of the culmination of the story that you are going to share. Uh, you know, but ladies, we've only done this one other time before, but we're we're just going to have to invite Kayla back for a two-parter because there is so much more after this point. And I know a lot of you can relate to feeling that you've sort of reached that tip of the mountain and, and that you're really right at that point of happily ever after, and you're not. And and there's there's so much more. So we're going to invite Kayla back for, for part two. Before we sign off, though, we have so much to talk about when it comes to where you find your value and and just words of wisdom that you can share with listeners. And we'll get to all of that in part two. Before I ask you to pray for the listeners, though, I just I always like to have the opportunity to do this because you talked about your brother being in the military. And as you introduced yourself at the very beginning, mentioned that your husband is currently in the military. So you've experienced military life in sort of two different ways. And every time I have the honor of talking to a speaker, a talking to a woman who's sharing her story that includes military life, I I just want to stop and say thank you. Most of the time when I'm talking to the, the women, 
so far, none of them have been in the military themselves, but that doesn't mean that they are not serving and it doesn't mean that they are not sacrificing. Uh, so I don't ever want an episode to just cut off without pausing for that, for that moment to just oh, appreciate you. you. Thank you. So. so Caleb, would you, would you mind closing us in prayer for the listeners, particularly just thinking of women who a hundred percent relate to your story in feeling devalued and trying to find value. I know that that resonates with, with so many. Yeah, absolutely. Father, we thank you for being with us. We thank you that no matter where we are in the stage of life, Lord, whatever stage we're in, wherever we're at, God, that you see us, that you have seen our hearts, Lord, that you know exactly the hurt and the struggles and just the path that we're on. I thank you for valuing us, God. I thank you for valuing us, not because of what we do for you, but because of what you did to bring value to our lives, Lord. And for the women who are listening, God, that don't feel valued either, whether it be by the males in their life or whether it be by parents or friendships or family or anyone, Lord, whatever the situation may be for them specifically, God, I pray right now in your son Jesus' name, God, that you would allow the Holy Spirit to speak truth into their life, that you would quiet the lies that they don't have value. You would quiet the lies that they don't have worthiness, God, but that you would show them that through you, they are valued, God, and that if they don't have that saving knowledge of your son and what he did to bring that value to us, Father, I pray for their salvation. I pray that you would open their eyes and show them that they are not perfect, but they are redeemed, Lord. And I thank you for that. I thank you for your redemption and your grace. And I thank you for who you are in our lives, God. And I pray this and a special blessing over each one of these women. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. I so appreciate you taking time um, to share this. And we are very excited to have you come back for your, your part two. Ladies, thank you so much for listening. We hope you were blessed and encouraged and impacted. Um, we hope you come back next time to hear the rest of Kayla's story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women. Women.